Hey, this is Mark A. Altman. And if you're a fan of this podcast, you already know the 50-year mission is definitive oral history of Star Trek. And Secrets of the Force will tell you everything you want to know about the history of Star Wars. But what you probably don't know is Ed Gross and I have a new book coming out this July. They shouldn't have killed this dog. The complete uncensored ass-kicking oral history of John Wick, Gun Fu, and the new age of action. Coming from St. Martin's in hardcover, digital, and audio. You can order it today. Welcome back to the 430 Movie. We got our expert programmers here to curate fantasy theme weeks of classic films. From 1998, film directed by Steven Soderbergh called Out of Sight. Yes. Soderbergh directs it with such a sort of confident, self-assured style. Lex Luthor in Superman. What is it about Gene Hackman that... His uh, performance, it's off the charts, but still in reality. Fiendishly gifted. 1981, Sam Raimi opus, The Evil Dead. Oh, yes, fine choice. Sam Raimi invented entirely new ways to get shots that should not have been possible with the amount of money that he did not have. Charade. Oh, so Directed by Stanley Donnan. It's a textbook screenplay. It's just effortless, and there's not a wrong note in this movie. Can't say enough great things about it. We'll be back next Friday with an all-new episode of the 430 Movie, wherever you listen to podcasts. Join us now for the 430 Movie. The 430 Movie Podcast is available weekly wherever you listen to podcasts and on the free Electric Now app. Download it today. Hello and welcome to Best Movies Never Made, the podcast where we talk about interesting and infamous movies that never made it to or through production. Most of the time, the movies you're trying to make don't get made. Like, four of them may happen, one of them may happen, none of them may yeah. happen, and I'll be attached to three more things by end of summer. Turn the script into something resembling like Unforgiven with Conan. Yeah. Suddenly the rights expired and the whole thing just like went away Ow. overnight. New episodes will be available every other Monday. We won't see you at the movies. Best Movies Never Made, as featured in Entertainment Weekly, is available wherever you listen to podcasts and on the free Electric Now app. Hey, this is Mark A. Altman. And this is Darren Docterman. And we are the Inglorious Trexperts. And uh, this is an interesting episode, Darren, I have to say. You know, we, we, we talked recently about a couple of weeks ago, uh, the late, uh, great Harold Livingston passed away. He was the writer yep. on um, Star Trek The Motion Picture with Gene Roddenberry and Alan D. Foster, um, kind of. And, um, and uh, you know, we, we talked about just how what an interesting guy he was. He was one of the yeah. founders of the Israeli Air Force. Um, he was a novelist. Um, he wrote on the early days of TV. He wrote some great Mission Impossibles. He was the showrunner on Future Guy. But we, we remember him from Star Trek, the motion picture, and obviously the legendary stories that were involved in the case of making that and the battles he had with James. Right. Um, and, and Livingston was a very outspoken fella. So I felt like, you know, after reading the articles and everything else and saying my piece about him, as you did, I really wanted to find this interview I did with him, right. you know, because I just, I feel like, you know, you know, the news cycle moves so quickly and I, I want, I want the listeners of the show who care about this stuff to really have a chance to understand who Harold Livingston was and yeah. why he's significant in the annals of Star Trek history and why he hated Star Trek so much. Right. Um, and so I, I, I left no stone unturned 
And I found the interview that I did with Harold a couple of years ago for the 50-year mission. Right. Now, I, as I mentioned, I think the last time we talked about this, I did it in a diner. It was he. I interviewed him in a diner. It was nothing it was, could be finer. By his request, out in Woodland Hills, I, I I went out to the valley, which I hate to do, but I was willing to do it for Harold, and um, uh, uh, interviewed him at, at, by his request. Although he said, "Oh, nice, nice place you picked here." At one point, I'm like, "He he picked it. I would have never picked it. I would have come to his house where it was nice and quiet." But he wanted to meet at a freaking diner, so it's loud. Um, Mark Rivera, I'm sure, will do his best to uh, clean it up. Um, if you were wondering what I was eating, I could, you know, tell you, uh, I think I was having a, a French uh, dip uh, with some steak fries and Dr. Brown's black cherry. In case you're wondering, <laughs> you can picture that while you're listening to the interview. Um, but, you know, I think the content of it is so interesting that it's worth, um, you know, nurse mating us through these difficulties and uh, trying to get through all the forks and the waiters and the, uh, the, the, the cacophony of, of noise in the diner. And if there's any if there's any intent to our podcast, it's to preserve the creators of Star Trek and to give any opportunity to uh, enlighten the audience with who they were and what they did. I'd say it's to touch the creator, but that sounds a little creepy. So um, show me on the doll where the creator touched you. But um, but I have to say it is part of our mission of Trek archaeology, which is what this show has really become about Trek archaeology. It's about unearthing. Um, uh, you know, and exploring all these avenues of Trectum that are rarely or underexplored. And uh, so it's always a thrill when we can talk to somebody like uh, Joe Tagusta or Bob Butler or Ralph Sinetsky. And now, of course, this is a wonderful interview with uh, Harold Livingston, who um, also went to my alma mater. We both went to Brandeis. And so mm. it's funny because I was excited to talk to him about like his memories and he didn't really remember much. In fact, the Brandeis University magazine had come to me and asked me, I remember one day, so a long time ago to interview Harold Livingston for the alumni magazine. And for whatever reason, I didn't. So I always felt bad about that. So when the opportunity came to interview him for the book, I said to, uh, and I, they're multiple because Ed Gross also interviewed him. Mm -hmm. um, so it's, uh, what we used in the, in, the, in the book is combination of my interview and his interview because right. Harold was always interested. I don't have much to say. I don't remember. It was a terrible experience. I, I, I don't know what I could add. Uh, but uh, if you really feel it's necessary to talk to me, well, okay, fine. Come to this diner. And, like, and then, of course, he starts remembering things. Well, yeah, especially because, you know, he really liked the turkey rye. So, uh, yeah, and then he starts remembering. Right. And then you'll see I'm trying to get more and more out of him. And he starts to open up and tell these great stories about uh, uh, Jeff Katzenberg and Gene. And, uh, you know, as I mentioned, the Fantasy Island story and Aaron Spelling right. is a classic. Um, and of course, I I started by talking about Bruce Geller and Mission Impossible because Mission Impossible is really important in the annals of Star Trek because it was yeah. the other Desilu show. It was the other show they were spending a fortune on. Um, in a way, you could argue the combination of Star Trek and Mission Impossible were why Lucy had to sell because yeah. she was spending so much on both shows. Two expensive shows. Yeah. And, um, and of course, uh, Leonard, after finishing Star Trek, went on to Mission Impossible, which you could argue was the more successful show. It had certainly lasted more on CBS uh, longer. And, and then uh, it spawned this, um, you know, hugely successful series of, of, uh, of movies. But, but you know, other people would argue that the moment Leonard joined the cast of Mission Impossible is where it jumped the shark. You don't think Matt Paris, the man of a thousand faces was a. He, he never, he never spoke to me as a character no, for some reason. No, I always, I like, <laughs> I like Martin Landau and Barbara Bain. 
I loved Martin Landau and Margaret Mead. Yeah, I thought they were great. A lot better than they were in Space 1999, which we also you know, love. That's an unfair comparison, but yes. But, you know, and Peter Graves was great. Absolutely. That's why I hated the De Palma movie where they made him the villain. I felt yeah. you can't make you can't make him the villain. You can't make uh, can't make. Well, thank goodness Peter Graves said no. I right because he was the villain. He had uh, integrity. Yeah. He's like you can't make my character the villain. It's not right, and he was right. So you get John Voight. Yeah. So you know what I'm going to say. Definitely. No. Don't. You don't have to say it. <laughs> you don't have to say it. We all know. You know what I was going to say about John Voight being a villain. But uh, yeah, let's let's hear this uh, wonderful uh, interview from the past and hopefully uh, people will be able to enjoy it despite the kitchen noises. Let, let's do it and see if there is any comparison. We're about to That's find right. out. I know it's such a long time ago. And, so I, and, and when we do these interviews, we expect everyone to have this uh, photographic memory of things that happened. Uh, and, and I know it's, it, it's sort of lost to the sands of time. But whatever you, whatever you, you can remember, in, in terms of uh, Mission Impossible, I'd love to know sort of just your thoughts about Bruce Geller and working with Bruce. And, you know, uh, all I can tell you is I, was, I used to play golf with Bruce. And uh, one day we were on our way to the golf with on a Saturday morning. We were driving to the golf course. So he, he tells me that he just sold this series, Mission Impossible. I think that the CBS. Sorry, it's so loud in here. I'm just going to move it over. Well, uh, the worst place you could you could choose. But anyway, the, the restaurant or the or, or the uh, the booth. The restaurant. Oh, okay. <laughs> Is this is this coming through now? This is, yeah, this is uh, okay. unlike the old days of tape recorders and stuff. When I used to the the, the the digital is when I've done a couple of noisy restaurants now, phenomenal. So anyway, so Bruce, all right. So Bruce tells me he sold this series, but I, I want to tell you I'm not going to hire you because your forte is character and such but okay so anyway unfortunately Bruce is killed several seasons later and a friend of mine named Larry Heath became and Bruce Lansbury became so they brought me on and I wrote 10 of them that's all I can tell you I don't know how I did it but so it was um you pretty much, I mean, it was before big staff, you were freelancing, so you really weren't spending much time on the lot or much production. You turn in the script, and that would be that would be it. Um, later, shortly thereafter, you did a six million dollar man. Did you work with Hart Bennett at all on that? Or? I don't even, I don't even remember. <laughs> okay, do you remember anything about? There was a show you did in the mid '70s called Fantastic Journey. <laughs> the name is familiar. Yeah. <laughs> It obviously made quite an impression. It was a short-lived NBC show, not not important. Let's talk about you first getting involved with Phase 2. Paramount had just pulled the plug on a movie. They decided they were going to bring Star Trek back to television. How did you... How did you first get involved with that? I uh, I was produced. I produced a show called for ABC called Future Cop. You don't know about. It. I vaguely remember. It was, it, it was a good show, and uh, I I was very close to a, the the head of production at Paramount uh, TV production was Arthur Fellows. So 
as far as I know, I, uh, they were they, they they were very down on Roddenberry with reason, and so Arthur brought me in when they decided to do this phase two, which uh, Paramount is going to have their own television network, I think, or something like that. I don't so they brought me to produce it. I don't know. I never saw Star Trek in my life. And uh, my first meeting with Roddenberry was a total disaster. We, we, we hated each other right first look. And uh, I have a 90-year-old libido. So. <laughs> you don't know what that means. Anyway, so uh, I don't he says, what do you know about uh, Star Trek? I said, nothing. Well, that, that went over very well. And so he expected you to kiss the ring and be reverent like everyone. So the first, uh, so anyway, he's, he said, you got to read the Star Trek Bible, whatever the fuck that was, I don't know. So he gives me this unintelligible pamphlet, which I'd never read. Right. And uh, a couple of days later, yeah, I read everything right. Well, Paulville was coaching me on the side. So I had to sit through 72 episodes of Star Trek, which I decided that this was this was wagon train in space. So what am I going to do with it? I, don't, I have no idea. But uh, all this is hazy in my memory. You must understand. I just remember that Roddenberry and I were absolutely... Well, anyway, I hired... I started to develop 13 scripts. I hired... I had... Uh, What's his name? The guy who did Jonathan Livingston Seagull, Richard Bach. Mm-hmm. I hired him, and I don't know. I, I found, and, and with Colville's help, I, it, we found some other other writers. So I started to develop these series. In the meantime, time is rushing on. We have to have a pilot script. So I couldn't find a writer for the pilot script, and I finally said I'll have to do it myself. So Alan Dean Simmons had a story called. In thy image, right? And uh, so I took that story. I went home, closed the doors, left Poville in charge of story stuff, locked the doors, four weeks, sat on the floor, wrote the fucking script. Now, this Alan Dean Foster script was actually based on an idea he had for an earlier. Yes, run yes, show. yes, yes, yes. What was the appeal of that to you at that point? Just that you needed them. You needed the premiere, and this is... I guess. I, I, I don't know. I think Roddenberry... I can't tell you. I don't remember. All I know is that's the story they wanted. Mm-hmm. And I said, okay. And I... So I, as I, said, I wrote the script. So I, I bring it into the office, and I give it to Roddenberry. And he says, okay, you've done your job. I'll, done, I'll do now. I'll do mine. I mean, he's going to rewrite it. And I'm telling you, I knew at the spot. That was a Friday night. So... Monday morning, they come back back in the office. He's rewritten the script. So he gives it to me and to John Poville and to Bob Goodwin. Who was the, have you talked to him at all? Not yet. Bob Goodwin was the line producer? Or? He was the line producer. And the director at the time was Bob Collins. So they, they all read it. They come, and then they congregate in my office. And we look, I mean, this is total shit. Who's going to tell him? Well, of course, they elected me. So 
I go into Gene's office, and he's sitting there beaming. I have the script. I said, "This is this is this is unintelligible." <laughs> I said, "No, Gene, it's shit." <laughs> well, I want to tell you the next thing he does, the, the dumbest thing he could ever do, is we'll let the studio decide. So he gives both scripts to the studio, to Michael Eisner and to Fellows and to Jeff Katzenberg. Two days later, we meet in Eisner's office and Eisner's standing in. Gene is all expected. Eisner has both scripts. There's my script in one hand. And he says, Gene, I have both scripts. Gene, he says, Gene, your script is television. He says, Harold's script is a movie. Oh, shit. The next thing I know, I don't remember what happened after time passed. I had a 10-week contract, which soon ran out. And I, anyway, I left anyway, go and produce a, a show called uh, Fantasy Island. Did you? Was it fan? Oh, you said Fantastic Fantasy Journey. Fantasy. Well, Fantastic Journey was an earlier Fantasy show. Island. Fantasy for, Island, of course. For Aaron Spelling. Mm-hmm. So I went to produce that, and uh, that's a whole other story. But anyway, one Saturday night, so the next thing I know is that They've decided to take a motion picture from Star Trek and this this script of In Thy Image, which I wrote. And they have hired, rehired Leonard, Leonard Nimoy and, and they've got Bob Wise, Robert Wise director. So that, that's fine. Next thing I know is on a Saturday night, I get a call at 10 o'clock at night, pick up the phone. I knew it was Roddenberry. Hello. How are you? I said, what? I said, no, I said, he just asked, I said, what the fuck do you want? He says, listen, I, I got a problem. I said, I know you have. He said, what do you want from me? He said, I want you to read a script. I said, whose script? Yours? I won't read it. No, 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 no. No, this is uh, Dennis. Oh, yeah, Dennis. Um... Dennis, whatever. Clark. Dennis Clark. Not 10 minutes later, the doorbell rings. There's a messenger of the script. So Gene had asked me to read it, get back to him, no matter what time tonight. So I read the script, my script, rewritten a number of times, total shit. So I call him up and I said, I, I said, forget it. He said, listen, he said, will you meet me and Bob Wise tomorrow morning at Nate Nails, Sunday morning? So I go, okay. So we meet. It's the first time I ever met Bob Wise, the revered director. My first words to him were, I said, Mr. Wise, you better take up, you better take a gun and shoot yourself. Which went over good. And Gina could laugh. <laughs> anyway, the, the upshot of that, they hired me back. So now I got him by the balls, deleted. And uh, so I go back to work. I'm all through with spelling anyway. So I go back to work for 10000 a week. And I'm, I'm rewriting my own script. But now I have Nimoy to help. Nimoy is a tremendous help. He used to come to my house every night. So anyway, I write the script. And uh, the rest you know about the uh, Roddenberry. Oh, so I, I, so the first, I, I write the first draft. And Rod, my, my contract with Paramount is Roddenberry is not to put pen to paper. Absolutely. So the next side, I deliver the first, I deliver the pages, first draft. And I, Eisner and uh, Katzenbach 
uh, Katzenberg, Katzenberg, are in Paris. So Isaac calls me from Paris. He says, Harold, what is this shit? I said, what are you talking about? He said, the script you just sent me. I said, what are you talking about? It's a good script. Bob Wise. I would. I didn't send it without Bob's approval. So I ran to Bob. We find out that Gene's secretary, a nice middle-aged lady named Susan Sackett, got the script, put it aside, took Gene's script, the script that Gene had written, and sent it to Eisner. I mean, it's the kind of shit that went on. So Bob Wise told me later, he said, he'd been in the business for 40 years. He'd never had an experience like this with these people. <laughs> so, anyway, so I quit. I walked up. The second time you quit. I walked. Mm-hmm. I get a call from Katzenberg. Come to the office. I run to you. 7 p.m. I go over there at 7 o'clock. Go in his office. He's got to go out for a He's got to go out for a phone call. Goes out. Secretary comes in. And she says, can I get you a drink? So 7 o'clock, I'm always, I always had a drink of gin. So I said, yeah, I'll have a shot of gin with some ice cream. me a glass of gin. Go with gin. Walks out, locks the door. I can hear the door click. I'm locked in. <laughs> so Kat, 20 minutes later, Katzenberg comes back in. I'm whacked out of my head. And anyway, I make a deal with him. I come back for more money. And uh, also, I got a $50,000 script coming out of him. So I came back, wrote the script. This this is over a period of a year. I hope I make sense. So far, so good. Because <laughs> I can't make sense. But anyway, uh, so while I was shooting, I started to shoot the film, and Gene just kept rewriting. Tried driving everybody nuts. I quit again, third time, and knowing that they dragged me back. So finally, we, somehow we finished it. And, and Gene got the last word anyway. When you say that, he got the last word because it was his time or because ultimately... What he did was he ma- he had made a deal with Pocketbook to novelize my screenplay, 400 grand. And boy, did he enjoy telling me that. <laughs> anyway. And he got to change everything he wanted to change that he couldn't get away with in the script. Yeah. All the, all the ridiculous sex stuff that he added. The, 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 the weird, uh, all that nonsense. So, okay. So let me, I mean, obviously there was a huge degree of antipathy between the two of you. I assume what brought you back to develop in my image was because the studio made it, obviously. He, he couldn't. Oh, yeah, no, they, they forced him to. And I'm going to take you back just for a second to Future Cop. Tell me a little bit about what Future Cop was. Future Cop, I can't remember the name, was a, a robot. He was a manufactured device. So it could be, it could be hurt. And he had a, a mechanical, a, a computer brain. And Ernie Borgnine was his mentor. And we, it was a very good, it was a very nice show. I mean, here's a question I left field, but do you think part of some of Roddenberry's resentment, he had had a show called Question, also about a robot that didn't go to series, that was rejected? No. You don't think that that was part of it? I never heard of it. All right. And I think at the time you met, he was also doing a show called The Nine, which was sort of a romantic laugh about his own. Well, that, that, you'll have to talk to Povil about that. 
And that's some fucking insanity about uh, a group of... Uh, Adepovo wrote a script. Oh, shit. Well, let me ask you, you know, everyone talks about, even through the craziness of Star Trek commercial picture, Robert Wise was, you know, a rock. That he was a total pro. You never saw him lose his... Never did. His temper. What was, what was it like working with Bob Wise? It was a pleasure. Was having an ally like that helpful with Roddenberry? Because you had somebody... Who had I, I couldn't have managed without Wise. We were split into two camps. That's why that's why Wise made the crack. That he'd never had an experience like that. Never dealt with people like that. You talked about how helpful Leonard Nimoy was. You worked with Shatner on Barbary Coast a couple of years before. Oh yeah. What was your I, experience I, like with Shatner? Julie? I don't. I didn't know Shatner that well then, as I got to know him later. But I think I did. I did two or three Barbary Coast. I don't remember. They're only 13, so I did one one mission impossible with Shatner that made some of my notes. Wasn't there a clause in their contracts that they got script approval if the production went a certain amount of time? So Shatner and the boy got more involved with the script at a certain point. I don't know. Oh, okay. I just wondered if... No, but when I say Nimoy helped me, it was because Gene was grabbing the pages and rewriting, putting... And he got so he put, he put his initials on him and and, and then then gr 4 p.m so i i'd have to get them and rewrite those with minor hl 5 10 p.m and we did this and nemo would come to my house at night and we'd have to fix what what gene did because gene would get gene would give it to the to the production people. I, I don't remember what the hell. Well, how did the script supervisor even keep up? I mean, you were delivering you know, revisions on the hour, not even by the day. By the hour is, is quite correct. Um, I know you had a big issue with the resolution of the movie. Um, the fact that Decker and Ilea end up merging. Tell me about that whole third act. I can't. Craziness. I can't. I'm sorry, Mark. I, I just don't remember. Yeah, sure. I think I got so disgusted with it that I just try to put it up. I cannot tell you. I, I've heard someone's asked me this before that I had some, I made a lot of noise about this. I don't recall. Have you watched the picture since it no. over the years at all? Or? I saw it once. I saw the director's cut. It looked the same to me. <laughs> Let me ask you, um, obviously the premiere in Washington uh, was a huge deal. I'm glad you mentioned that. It's a black tie event. And uh, so he, I, either before or after the film, I don't remember. But Roddenberry's up on stage introducing the, the, the uh, company, the people. So he doesn't mention me. Shatner runs onto the stage and says, I think you've forgotten a very important person. <laughs> this was the kind of an asshole that Gene was. Unbelievable. I was in, I was in love with his wife. <laughs> She was, uh, back in the day, she was oh. quite something. But she, they came to my house for dinner one night, and her head 
touched the top of the chandelier in my foyer. And I was, I looked at it. My wife said to me, she's too big even for you. Um, regarding that premiere, I mean, obviously, you know, the money was, was a good situation, meaning John was a good situation. Was there anything you've looked back upon fondly about the experience? Other, you know, or was it, it was pretty much just a nightmare from start to finish? I would say, other than a few extracurricular diversions, uh, it was, it was, look, look, there's a lot of money, and it made me, it made me as a big-time screenwriter at the time, so I couldn't complain about that. Are you surprised that here we are after all these years, people are still calling you up and saying, let's talk about the Star Trek? I'm astonished. Why do you think it is? I can't tell you. I think everybody's nuts. <laughs> I mean, that, that is, I have never seen, by the way, the new editions, the new version. Right. Never looked at them. No interest. Did you watch any of the movies subsequent to the one you did? I think I saw. Thank you. I think I saw the one with uh, Ricardo uh, Richard Mandelbaum. Uh, what's his name? Uh, oh, Ricardo Mandelbaum. The second one. Did you work with him on? No. No, no, I didn't work. When, when, uh, what's his name? Uh, you mentioned his name before. Producer, producer, writer, who came on for the second one. Nick Martin? No. Uh, uh, producer, writer, came on for the second one. One of my, uh, one of the guys, we never got along. Oh, shit, what the heck? I'm, I'm sorry, Mark. No, 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 look, this is all. My memory is totally fragmented. It's, uh, it's a long time to wow. expect you uh, to remember all the details and all the people, particularly for an experience that wasn't particularly satisfying. Anyway, well, to get back to you. No, I, I saw the second one with... Uh, What's Mandelbaum's name? The, uh, who, who was in the second one? The second movie? Yeah. Ricardo Mandelbaum. Yeah. Mandelbaum. Mandelbaum. He's doing now. Of course. Yeah. <laughs> so, y'all And uh, I saw that, and I cannot tell you what I thought. I don't even remember. And that was the only one. And then there was something about a whale. Some. Oh, yes, that was Star Trek 4. Right. I must have seen that because of him. But that was him. Well, did you have, on Fantasy Island, dealings with Ricardo Mandelbaum? <laughs> what, what were your feelings about Ricardo? I've always heard good things about him. I, I never got to know him except to say, well, nice guy. What was, you made a face when you were describing the experience of Fantasy Island. Uh, well, uh, they had hired me. They had a producer. They had already shot five or six episodes in Burbank at the club. And everybody hated it. The producer was a, a, a kid named Michael Fisher. Everybody hated me. Hated him. So ABC uh, had me come on. There was a whole story in TV Guide at the time about about bringing me in to save it. So they bring they bring me in, but the idea is not to 
not to tell Michael Fisher because I'm in I'm in I'm in Beverly Hills at the 20th lot at the, at the Spelling Studio, and Michael is in Wisconsin Bourbon. So I'm not. So he's not. Right, what do I care? So, so I start to develop. I developed 13 scripts, and I got. And I, as a matter of fact, I rewrote one of his. Uh, anyways, I do. So mine are not ready to be filmed yet. They're just about. And they got to go on with his because the schedule. And the first show goes on. It's a fucking runaway hit. It's a fluke. Right, right. <laughs> the second week goes on. Bigger numbers. I drive into my office on the lot. My parking area is blanked out. True story. I go up to my office. My office is empty. The secretary's gone. All my possessions, cigars, boxes, humidor, are on a fucking tape. So I go in. I can't. Aaron, Aaron ducks me. So I raise hell about that. And finally, I corner him about two days later. And he said, boy, Chick, these things happen. I'll make it up to you. What do you want? I said, you have a show called Las Vegas. I hadn't sold yet. If it sells, I want it. He said, you got it. I said, call my agent right now in front of me. Calls my agent. to see it was CAA. Camera, Tony something. Called, Not Tony Pants. No, Tony uh, Ludwig. Tony okay. Ludwig. Is that name found? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Is, is he yeah. still around? He is. No kidding. He is. So, so anyway, Aaron says, Tony, if I, show, if I sell Vegas... Harold is the producer. Harold gets the show. Done. He says, okay, boy, check. I said, okay. So my days are done, but I have a, still have a contract. So every Thursday afternoon at 2 o'clock, the doorbell rings, and there's Aaron Chauffeur, a bodyguard, with an envelope. Give me a $5,000 check for the rest of the, whatever the four or five weeks left. <laughs> so, anyway, Vegas, I know, it's a good thing Vegas, I went back, that, 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 that's when Roddenberry called me to go back to, to Star Trek, which is a good thing for that show Vegas, because I would have changed the whole goddamn thing. <laughs> um, one of the reasons, I mean, I would think being a novel is so much more appealing is you're not going through the kind of craziness you went through on Star Trek where everything's by committee, rewritten, a novel is what you... Look, as a novelist, the good thing about it, you write the book, nobody can hire you or fire you or not, not hire you. It's you. You, you, if, if it works, it works. And you don't have to worry, and you don't have to get involved with uh, no talents, entrepreneurs like Gene Rodden. I mean, this, this guy's a monster. 
What was it about Roddenberry, aside from obviously the credit hogging that you found so uh, objectionable? He couldn't write or produce. Well, I don't. I, that I don't want to know. I can't. I can't speak to that. But he, he was an inept writer. He just could. He would write. I mean, we had an actor, the actor who did uh, Decker. Yeah, Stephen Collins. Stephen Collins. Stephen Collins told me one day, he said, one page of mine equals 16 pages by count of Roddenberry. See, Roddenberry would launch into these philosophical diatribes, and he'd forget about story, about typing. He wanted to say what he wanted. But when we first when we first met, we had a... We had an elected. We were both in the Air Force. We both flew C-47s. So we had... That was the beginning. That, that lasted a day. That was the courtship. That was the day. That was the honeymoon. Right. <laughs> when he gave me the Bible, then I said, oh, shit. I, but, I mean... Do you think it, it, the deification by the fans is what created the monster, or did the monster always exist? Look, he was a cop, and he was uh, the chief chauffeur, the chief of police chauffeur, and so he, he got to know people, and he wormed his way in to, to the industry. And I, I, I don't know the rest of it, but all I know is when I read, I read several scripts of his, and I want to tell you they're fucking unreadable. I've been working on a memoir, and I have some Roddenberry scenes in it, but it's very difficult. And I, and I, I say, who, who gives a shit? I, who cares? But Roddenberry's past, ancient history, nobody cares anymore. I don't know why the hell they would buy St. Martin's, buy St. Martin's. I won't be using that part. <laughs> you know why? Because there is still a passion. Maybe it's for what Star Trek represents, more so than what it is, uh, you know, among a great deal of people. Um, you know, and... I See, I've never understood the cult, the cult Never understood. Hoville understands. Tried to explain it to me once. But you know, it's interesting. The people who have been most successful in adapting Star Trek have been the people who don't understand it, who weren't fans. You know, whether it be you know Nick Meyer or Mark Bennett or you know. Arv Bennett is the name I was trying to think of. When he came, Arv Bennett and I. Is he, is he still alive, by the way? Um, barely. Uh, we didn't hit. We, we, oh, I'm sorry to hear that. We, we never, I never, I had a terrible uh, run-in with him on something, which I don't even remember. It was at Universal. I can't, I, it's so one. Are you Six Million Dollar Man? Because he was doing Six Million Dollar Man at Universal. It may, it may have, episode. may have been, but it was a, I, I really. What happened? I don't remember. At one time, I had a, a I had a stupid temper because I thought I thought I thought of myself as a star, <laughs> and uh, I would let you know about it. Uh, or let us say I had Harold's foot and mouth 
sick disease. But I'll tell you a funny story about Bennett and Roddenberry. Back in when they were doing the original Star Trek, Roddenberry, um, Roddenberry was producing a pilot for a friend, for Sam Rolfe. Sam Rolfe was out of town. And Art Bennett was the ABC executive. So Roddenberry throws Art Bennett off the set of the pilot, throws him off. And then 30 years later, Bennett is handed <laughs> Star Trek after Star Trek, the motion picture, and basically, you know, shows Roddenberry. So, a little bit of... I don't, I, as I said, I, I, it's funny when you said his name, he left to me. I don't, I don't want any more of that shit, sort of. Oh, uh, uh, do you remember being there when all this drama was going on with the special effects, obviously with Bob Abel? Yeah, I vaguely, I know that we had a lot of... See, I paid no attention to that. Right. right. But we just focused on the script. Yeah. Uh, was it Doug Trumbull? Yeah, uh, Doug Trumbull came on. And yeah. Like, yes. and I remember the... Because I know they blew about $7 million the first time. Right. And... I never paid any attention. I, I, I didn't want to bother with that because I was too trying to make sense out of this goddamn story. That's all I was concerned about. Do you think in retrospect it would have been better to just start with something original rather than to try and save the TV pilot? I, 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 have, I can't answer that. <laughs> but it was interesting that it, the choice was to adapt the TV pilot rather than to write a feature screenplay from scratch. Colville could probably answer that do you recall at all your feelings about Katzenberg and Eisner? Did you ever think that they would turn out to be... No. Uh, well, I liked Eisner. And Katzenberg was... Uh, I ran into Katzenberg later on. He had to, he had to fulfill that script commitment to me. So he didn't turn the script down because they had a payment. Right. So I ran into him one day at a, a dermatologist's office in the waiting room. So I said, Jesus, I said, why did you turn that script out? It was a good script. He said, uh, Alan, uh, it was some hot writer, I don't Alan something, like Alan, Alan X, you're not. So I said, Irving Thalberg, you're not. <laughs> but he was, I, he is, he has turned down a couple of uh, submissions of mine. <laughs> I like Katzenberg, but uh, I like Dyson very much. He was a, I'll never forget when he called me from Paris. What is it, shit? <laughs> you, um, was it a challenge changing? I mean, you probably won't remember, but the Zon role to Spock when Leonard came back on the show, you know, adapting it. You talked a little bit about working with Leonard. You said he had very good story sense. He, he, he had good character sense. Shatner did too. But I didn't work as closely with Shatner as I did with Leonard because he, he, he lived nearby. So right. every day after the nine o'clock was at my house and we sit for a, an hour and a half in my office going over the place. And he knew the characterization because he was uh, absolutely, he, he was more Star Trek 
than I was. Right, sure. So yeah. he helped me in that respect. What about the humor? I know, I mean, a lot of the, the reviews sort of criticized it for not having more of a sense of humor, and that was a thing that Roddenberry was always against, was the humor uh, of Star Trek. Because, you know, Gene Kuhn would come in and replace him, really, was, you know, did some great, very funny episodes, beloved episodes, and then when Roddenberry came back, he wanted all the humor gone. Was that ever something that you... I did. Um, any thoughts about, let's say, like, versus Kambada? I mean, you know, that was maybe recollections, just if I throw out a few names about... Well, I, the only thing I remember about her is why the hell did they shave her head? What a stupid thing to do! But that was Roddenberry's idea. And did you... Do you think it was finding a, a um, transition that would appeal to non-fans as well as fans? Is that a difficult challenge? You wanted to be just preaching to the cult? I no, I, I wanted to make it more universal. That was my when I when I started out. Right. But I never I never had a chance to do anything with it. Hypothetically, had the TV show happened, do you think that it would have been successful? Was it something? Was it more satisfying to you than the? Frankly, the with, with me producing, it's a lucky thing I never went through. Is it lucky it never went through? Yeah. Why is that? I would have I would have fucked it up. <laughs> no, I I didn't try to admit, I I didn't try for the universality. That that's what I try to do with with Fantasy Island by parenthetically because I wanted to make it real that the characters in Fantasy Island if you remember the premise I do all too all too well oh I wanted to really you were in trouble you, 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 you could lose you, you could really get hurt and this thing was real it became a real spelling soap opera but early on it was a little darker and a little more uh, I w well let's was that was my intention make it go all the way with make it what they I guess what they call today a reality show I don't know. I, you know they tried to bring it back what like, 10 years ago but it didn't work at all very misguided and then there was talk of doing I think a, a feature with Eddie Murphy as Mr. Rock that was 20 years ago Ridiculous. There's still something in that premise that could work. Did you ever have you talked to? Are they right? Have you talked to the actors? Star Trek? Actors? Yeah, a bunch of them. Is Grace with uh, Grace? Uh, Grace Lee Whitney? Yeah, she's still around. Yeah, yeah, she is. I mean, yeah, I mean, she was gorgeous. And, uh, You're telling me she looked good in the seventies. Um, I mean, she was a knockout. But I guess she's doing. Um, they have the big Star Trek convention every year in Vegas at the end of uh, uh, July or August. Um, she's gonna. Be, she's there. Well, I, I've, I've, I've never been to those. Before. You've never been to any of them. They've even even when you were. It's, it's funny because I know Phil Kaufman, who was developing the movie before it became the TV series again, um, had gone to a convention back at the time. Him and Gerald Eisenberg. Um, and they said it was an interesting experience. I never was. They no, said nobody ever invited me. I never. I never uh, uh, professed any uh, interest in it. They, they said it gave them a lot of insight into Roddenberry because they would see all these girls throwing themselves at him throughout the weekend. And they, you know, I wrote a. Uh, I almost sold a novel 
to Harper uh, about with Roddenberry. It was called Windjammer. Wind, it was a science fiction. And, and the character was a Roddenberry character. And it begins, it begins with him in a whorehouse getting the shit beat out of him. But uh, uh, what the hell did I what was the what was I trying to You were talking about Windjammer, the novel oh, and how Roddenberry yeah. so, so was a I had, clap about Roddenberry. So uh, it was a Romana clap. Oh, so when he when he dies, I have his secretary right, right running down the aisle saying they killed him. They killed him. The studio killed him. They killed him. They killed him. It's like network. <laughs> the network. The uh, the best quote I heard about Roddenberry was someone said they said the thing about Roddenberry was he always hated L. Ron Hubbard and Scientology because he felt he should have been that guy. <laughs> I love it. Yeah. So, when are you going to see Coville? Ed talked to him a couple of times because he's up north. Yeah, so. he's in Vancouver. Yeah, so um, Ed's been doing phoners with him. And, uh, uh, you, you know, he, he can... He can he, he, can, he can really help you out. Yeah, no. Much more than I And you had known John before you met on the show. On the show. No. And you became very good friends. Yeah. I made him. That, that's a, that was one of the, that was the, one of the first issues with Roddenberry and me. I wanted, I wanted John as my story editor. So Gene wanted him to continue on cleaning his garage. So I, he said, no, he said, I, he's not ready. I said, what do you mean he's not ready? Well, he's not at that level. I said, look, he's good, and I want him. He said, no, I don't, I don't think. I said, am I the goddamn producer in the show? He said, yeah. I said, then why are you questioning me? He says, if it means that much to you. I said, it means that much to the show. It means that. All right, all right, all right. So that took John out of, out of the garage. No, I told him if, if he didn't, either you had you had Popo or I was. No, I, I knew I knew it, and, and John was absolutely essential to me. I, I couldn't I couldn't have done anything. Else. As a writer, as an interpreter of the, yeah. the Holy Grail of yeah. Star Trek, absolutely running interference with Roddenberry. Absolutely. Was it? We mentioned Grace Lee Whitney. Was it tough because you had all these sort of third tier characters that you had to service? Like you know, you had the Uhuras, the Sulus, the Chekhovs. It's like you know, normally you know in a film you focus on your leads and you create a couple of interesting new characters. But you had to give everyone a moment, you know, because they were beloved characters. Well, they never. I, they really. I never really had too much to do with them. I, I knew Grace a little better, closer, but uh, that was the only one. Uh, and of course, Nimoy. And, uh, I never had. No, I don't remember too much about Chekhov or uh, what was the other guy? The, uh, the, Jap the Japanese guy. What his name? I'm sorry, who? Who's the Japanese guy? Oh, Sulu. The third decay. So, was it disappointing or was it sort of expected when the reviews were so rough on the whole endeavor? I was disappointed. But then I thought, these guys know a lot more than I do about them. Uh, that is the critics the hell oh, I know I know the story works it works but doesn't work it doesn't work I thought this one worked but it made a lot of money 
That's the other thing. Paramount, part of my contract is Paramount. It's got to give me an extra 50,000 bucks. And the show goes into profit. And when the movie goes into profit. Still negative. You're still waiting. <laughs> it's grossed around $500 million. And we're back. We're back. Uh, that was uh, that was truly amazing. I mean, yeah. I, we interviewed him for the uh, uh, the DVD of the director's edition back in uh, 2000, and uh, he was uh, he was exactly the same. Yeah, uh, he, he is. He, he ornery. <laughs> that's a great description. He's a curmudgeon. He was a curmudgeon, and uh, Star Trek is filled with his curmudgeons: Harlan, Walter. Uh, Harold, but I don't think anything anybody was more curmudgeonly than than Harold Livingston. I, I think that's a that's a fair statement. Yeah, and uh, <laughs> it's you know John D. F. Black too was a bit of a curmudgeon. Well, you know, you you know going on Gene, man, wow. I think when you're when you're working on such a uh, an optimistic and and bright uh, shining example of uh, science fiction television, you sort of have to take that uh, that stance. Or else you'll be uh, sort of labeled as a as a uh, a simpleton, perhaps. Yeah, there were no shiny happy people working on Star Trek. No, <laughs> <laughs> it's like you know what is it? They're creating, they were creating a world we'd all want to live in that had no place for them. Right, right. <laughs> that they would be miserable in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. No. <laughs> you know, it's, it's kind of the story of Moses. You know, he. He he brings them to the Holy Land, but he can't well, make, can never step into the Holy Land. Yeah, yeah. Yes. So, and it was like the people work on Star Trek. They postulated this this perfect world of the future, which they would have no place in. But um, anyway, it, uh, Harold, <laughs> uh, you know, I, I really I have to say when I when I read when I read that he had passed, I mean, like he, he was ninety eight, ninety seven. It wasn't a surprise, but it was it was truly sad because yeah. we shall not see the likes of him. Again, he was a very unique and outspoken individual in a world where everyone parses what they say and is so careful about how they speak and what they talk about and there what they're no willing to divulge. None, no self-censorship. And yeah. I love that about him. Yeah. And it made him a great interview. And it was, you know, and I love any chance to have Dr. Brown's black cherry soda. So, um, and I, I hope he enjoyed that meal. I was happy to be able to, to, to buy a, a deli lunch for uh, Harold Livingston and return <laughs> some of the, uh, the joy that he has given me over the years uh, uh, as a, as a fan of Star Trek, the motion picture. And uh, of course, you know, he was intimately involved in the phase two development and has great stories about that as yeah. well. And if you want to do a deeper dive, we explored phase two in a previous episode and also uh, talked to John Poville in our episode, the next phase, you may want to uh, seek those out if you haven't already listened to those episodes. If you want to do a deeper dive into uh, phase two, they're phasing now. Um, <laughs> so uh, anyway, uh, it's great. Uh, a special in this episode, a very special shout out to Mark Rivera, who had uh, his work cut out for him in terms of mixing uh, this episode. Hopefully uh, you were able to make out a few words of what me and Harold were saying. And uh, we want to thank our and producers. And the whole thing doesn't sound like a transporter accident. <laughs> That's right. I want to thank uh, 
uh, Natalie Miscali, uh, Peter Holmstrom, Zach Raggetts, our, our producing team, and of course, uh, all of you for continuing to support and listen to the podcast. You can show your love by rating us five stars wherever you listen to the podcast and follow us on the internet at Twitter on Inglorious Trek, Inglorious Trek Experts on Instagram and um, on Facebook. So until next week, when we bring you an all new episode of Inglorious Trek Experts, on behalf of Darren Docterman and myself, Mark A. Altman, keep on trekking. Ingloriously, of course. Here's to you, Harold. This show is produced by Dean Devlin and Mark A. Altman and is an Electric Surge Network production.